Hello, I am Dr. Ahmed Awan. I'm an academic nephrologist currently working with Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I also work with the transplant department at St. Luke's Medical Center in the huge Texas Medical Center also in Houston. I'm going to talk to you today about hepatitis C and CKD. And essentially what triggered this podcast is the review of most recent CADIGO guidelines that we published in Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. So this CADIGO guideline came out in 2018. It was spearheaded by Dr. Jadul, who is a nephrologist located in Belgium, and Dr. Paul Martin, who is a hepatologist currently at University of Miami. This guideline kind of updates the previous KDGO guideline on the topic of hepatitis C and CKD, which was published in 2008, 10 years earlier. As you know, that the management of hepatitis C has drastically changed over the last few years. In 2008, the options for treatment of hepatitis C were either interferon in combination with ribavirin, and all these treatment regimens all the options that we had in 2008 had tremendous problems, especially in patients with chronic kidney disease. We know interferon has tremendous problems as far as the side effects go, the flu-like symptoms, neurocognitive problems, depression, psychiatric problems, but especially in patients with chronic kidney disease, it is removed by dialysis. So if you are on dialysis, interferon is not a good option for treatment of hepatitis C. Also, if you are a kidney transplant recipient, you cannot use interferon because of its interference with the immunosuppression regimens. When it comes to ribavirin, it causes anemia, which is problematic in patients with chronic kidney disease who already suffer from some degree of anemia. It also causes pruritus, causes depression, and we know ribavirin is excreted renally. So it's usually not recommended for patients with GFR of less than 50. Now that we have the direct-acting antiviral regimens available, it's pretty easy and more practical to treat hepatitis C in these patients. So before we delve into the treatment options, uh, first, for our GI audience, I would just like to refresh your memories regarding the definition of chronic kidney disease. So essentially, chronic kidney disease is defined by KDGO as abnormalities of kidney structure and function, which is present for more than three months, with implications for health. And the classification of chronic kidney disease is based on the cause, the GFR category, and the albuminuria category. But for all practical purposes, when it comes to the management of hepatitis C and choosing the right medications, it is the GFR that you really need to remember. So patients who have a GFR of more than 90 but do have some degree of structural or functional kidney problems have CKD stage 1. If your GFR falls below 90, you have CKD stage 2. GFR below 60, you have CKD stage 3, which can be divided into 3A or 3B. If your GFR falls below, 50, uh, below 30, then you have CKD stage 4. And when it falls below 15, 
you have CKD stage five. Now, we know chronic kidney disease is a global health problem, and so is hepatitis C. As far as we know, in 2015, at least 71 million people worldwide were affected by hepatitis C. And when it comes to chronic kidney disease, anywhere from 8 to 14% of the world population is affected by chronic kidney disease. Now, the relationship between hepatitis C and chronic kidney disease is bidirectional. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, patients who have chronic kidney disease, whether it's CKD stage 3 or 4, whether the patients are on dialysis, whether they are kidney transplant recipients, have a higher prevalence of hepatitis C. Currently, based on our calculations, at least 31,000 patients in U.S. who are on hemodialysis are seropositive for hepatitis C. And in Western countries, at least 5% of kidney transplant recipients are positive for hepatitis C. Due to this huge prevalence, the guideline recommends that anyone who's diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, whether they're starting hemodialysis, whether they're being evaluated for kidney transplant, should at least be screened one time for hepatitis C. Now, the initial screening test is the enzyme immunoassay. So you're checking the antibody to hepatitis C, but if the antibody is positive, you have to confirm it with nucleic acid testing, also known as NAT. Now, in the interest of saving money, once the patients are on hemodialysis and the initial testing is negative, you can monitor them monthly by checking their serum ALT levels. Now, in a study of more than, more than 2,000 patients on hemodialysis, the serum ALT levels, if they were elevated, had a sensitivity of about 83% and specificity of about 90% for acute HCV infection. But keep in mind, in high prevalence areas, the negative predictive value for antibody testing is 90%, which means 10% of patients with negative antibody testing may still have HCV. So if you are encountering patients in the areas of high prevalence, especially in hemodialysis units, initial testing with NAT may be reasonable instead of first checking the antibodies and having the peace of mind that the patient is negative. Now, on the other hand, the presence of hepatitis C virus increases the risk of CKD development and progression. In a retrospective analysis, the HCV increased the risk of MPGN by twofold. The MPGN, membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, is a histologic pattern and it can develop in patients with hepatitis C because of immune complex disease. Now, they may or may not have cryoglobulinemia. So patients with hepatitis C can develop glomerular inflammation even in the absence of cryoglobulinemia. But the prevalence of cryoglobulinemia is increased about 17-fold in patients who are positive for hepatitis C. Now, the risk of CKD progression in patients with hepatitis C increases if you have other comorbidities that can cause kidney problems. 
For example, patients with hypertension or diabetes or cardiovascular disease or HIV have a higher risk of CKD progression compared to patients who do not have these comorbidities. So in patients who have hepatitis C without any kidney problems, and you're seeing them for the first time or you're following them in the clinic, and they start developing signs and symptoms of kidney problems, for example, hematuria or proteinuria or nephritic or nephrotic syndrome, they do need a kidney biopsy to rule out hepatitis C-related glomerulonephritis. Not all patients with hepatitis C will develop membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis or membranous nephropathy. Diabetic kidney disease or hypertensive kidney disease is also a possibility. And that's why despite some risks of kidney biopsy, it may be indicated and necessary in these patients. Now coming to the fun part, the treatment of hepatitis C infection in chronic kidney disease. What are the goals of treatment? And for the GI audience, the answer is pretty straightforward. We want to achieve sustained viral response. Why do we want to achieve that? One, it reduces mortality, but it also reduces other end organ effects of hepatitis C. If you are able to achieve sustained viral response, you can decrease the number of vascular events. You can decrease the intensity of cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. You can also decrease the risk of progression of kidney uh, progression of kidney disease and decrease the risk of end-stage kidney disease-related mortality. And that's why most trials of hepatitis C virus treatment aim to achieve sustained viral response. Because of all these benefits, the guideline recommends that everyone in the current situation with the availability of direct acting antivirals, all the patients with hepatitis C should be treated regardless of their GFR or the degree of cirrhosis. Now, what are the therapeutic options that we have available in patients with chronic kidney disease? The NS34A protease inhibitors were the first direct-acting antivirals that were introduced in 2011, Bosaprivir and Now, the NS34A protease inhibitors, Grisoprivir and Voxilaprivir, and NS5A replication inhibitors, Elbasvir, Velpatasvir, can all be used in patients with reduced GFR. And by reduced GFR, usually we are worried about CKD stage 4 and stage 5 when your GFR is less than 30. When your GFR is more than 30, you can pretty much use any of the available direct-acting antivirals. Now, sofosbuvir should not be used in patients with GFR of less than 30. So this is one group of medications that you need to keep in mind. It's very good and safe and effective medication for most of the genotypes at most GFRs, but when the GFR falls below 30, you should avoid sofosbuvir-based regimens. So coming to the treatment, as we know that T-surfer trial essentially studied grisoprivir-albasvir combination. Now, grisoprivir-albasvir also has the brand name Zepatir. 
So this combination was used in patients with genotype 1 who had stage 4 and stage 5 chronic kidney disease, meaning a GFR of less than 30, and they were treated for 12 weeks. And this drug combination achieved a sustained viral response of 99%, which is pretty impressive. But this was used only for genotype 1. Now, we need to remember both these drugs are metabolized by cytochrome P450 system, more specifically CYP3A4. So the inducers of this enzyme system, like rifampin and phenytoin, should be avoided in combination with these regimens as they can reduce the effective level of these medications. Also, the protease inhibitors should be avoided in patients with cirrhosis as they can decompensate uh, the liver function. Now, the other combination regimen which is pangenotypic and used in patients with reduced kidney function, GFR of less than 30, is glucaprivir pabrantisvir, the brand name Meveret. And this was studied in Expedition 4 trial, where glucaprivir pabrantisvir was used for 12 weeks in patients with genotypes 1 to 6. Now, this study had 82% of patients on hemodialysis, and there were a few patients who had previously been treated with sofosbuvir-based regimens. Now, this 12-week treatment regimen achieved a sustained viral response of 98%. So 102 out of 104 patients achieved a sustained viral response. Now, in an integrated analysis of nine trials, using more than, studying more than 2,000 patients without cirrhosis, an eight-week treatment regimen instead of 12 weeks of glucaprivir pabrantisvir also achieved a sustained viral response of 98%. So if you have a patient without cirrhosis, you can even do an eight-week combination regimen instead of a 12-week combination regimen. But in patients with cirrhosis, 12-week regimen, uh, a better sustained viral response. Now, sometimes the question comes, if we are using this medication for patients on hemodialysis, does it matter when we administer the medication? So the good news is that most of these drugs are protein-bound, and protein-bound drugs are usually not removed with dialysis. So timing of administration does not need to be altered even on dialysis days for these medications. So, in summary, treatment of hepatitis C in patients with chronic kidney disease, we know that grisoprivir albasvir can be used for all GFRs, but only for genotype 1 and 4. So, Zepatir, you can use across any spectrum of GFR, but not for patients who do not have genotype 1 and 4 HCV. As far as glucaprivir pabrantisvir is concerned, the Meviret, it's pangenotypic. You can use it for all genotypes across all GFRs. You can use it for patients who have cirrhosis. You can use it for patients who are on hemodialysis. So this is the summary of treatment of hepatitis C in patients with chronic kidney disease. When it comes to patients 
who have a kidney transplant, the most important thing you need to remember is that you definitely want to use interferon-free regimens. Now, all of these drugs that we have discussed in patients with chronic kidney disease can also be used for patients who have a kidney transplant. And by definition, all patients who have kidney transplant do have some degree of chronic kidney disease because of immunologic and non-immunologic mechanisms. So their chronic kidney disease is staged as T1 to T5 based on the GFR level compared to G1 to G5 in patients with chronic kidney disease that we discussed earlier. Now, two trials that I would like to mention conducted in patients with kidney transplant recipients using direct-acting antivirals. The first trial used ledipasvir, sofosbuvir, which is known as Harvani, the brand name Harvani, where this combination was used for 12 to 24 weeks in 114 kidney transplant recipients. Now remember, this combination has sofosbuvir, so the patients with GFR of more than 40 were treated, and this regimen achieved a sustained viral response of 100%, regardless of treatment duration. Whether patients were treated for 12 weeks or 24 weeks, everyone achieved a sustained viral response. The second trial was Magellan II, which was published in Hepatology in 2018. So it was a phase three open-label trial using our favorite glucaprivir pabrantesvir, the pangenotypic medication for 12 weeks. 80 of the patients were liver transplant recipients and 20 of the patients were kidney transplant recipients. All genotypes were treated and the drug achieved a sustained viral response of 98%. Using the drug regimen is similar in patients with chronic kidney disease as well as kidney transplant recipients. You just need to know the stage of the kidney disease and you need to know the genotype before making a treatment decision. But another factor that plays into your decision making in patients with kidney transplant is the drug-to-drug interactions because most of the kidney transplant recipients are on a three-drug immunosuppressant regimen mostly tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. Sometimes these patients may be on cyclosporin or mTOR inhibitors like serolimus or everolimus. Now, we know that most of these drugs, including tacrolimus, cyclosporin, mTOR inhibitors, are metabolized by cytochrome P450. Now, Protease inhibitors have significant interactions with these drugs. And whenever we use protease inhibitors with tacrolimus, the dose of tacrolimus has to be significantly reduced, sometimes to once a week or twice a week dosing. The drugs that do not have huge interactions with immunosuppressant medications are NS5A inhibitors like ledipasvir, NS5B inhibitors like sofosbuvir. Now, the combination drug, albasvir, grazoprivir, can increase the colonist level by about 43%. And if you use this drug regimen, albasvir, grazoprivir, with cyclosporin, cyclosporin increases the area under the curve for these drugs, twofold for albasvir and about 15-fold 
for grasoprevir. So we need to know these drug interactions and be mindful of them before starting these patients on direct-acting antivirals. There's a very useful resource by the University of Liverpool um, on their website. You can um, access it on hepdruginteractions.org. So before you start these patients of any of these regimens, you can check the drug interactions and adjust the doses accordingly. To conclude, I would say that pangenotypic medications that can be used even in patients with advanced CKD has made HCV cure a realistic goal. We still have a few barriers to consider. Now, the most important barrier to treatment of hepatitis C is the financial concerns. And then there is lack of referral to hepatologists. There are still plenty of patients in dialysis units who are tested positive for hepatitis C, but have not been referred to a hepatologist for treatment. So the things we can do to eliminate hepatitis C now that direct-acting antivirals are available is one, to promote access to direct-acting antivirals, uh, two, to reduce HCV transmission in dialysis units, and three, increase the referral to hepatologists. And if we can do this, it is possible to eliminate viral hepatitis as a global health problem within the next decade, as envisioned by WHO. Thank you very much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Please let us know what you think. Thank you.